All right, I'm turning this evening to Matthew chapter number 5. Matthew chapter number 5. And we're going to be looking this evening at verses 13 through 16. And our subject for this evening is the salt of the earth. The salt of the earth. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. In this three verses we're going to deal with tonight, or four verses rather, our Lord's going to deal with two main subjects. Uh, They are familiar words to us. Those two words are salt and light. After the Lord has given the characteristics of His disciples as we've been looking at the Beatitudes, now the Lord begins to speak specifically about their place in the world. Uh, It's one thing to know the Beatitudes. It's one thing to know what they are. It's another thing to how do we live in this world uh, based upon living by what the Lord has commanded, especially in the Beatitudes. The Lord is the one that calls his disciples the salt of the earth. It is his declaration. This is not a declaration that man is taking for himself. The Lord Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth. Now, we know the word earth is a reference to the entire creation, uh, not just the earth as a planet, but rather the earth as the creation of God. And that earth is being maintained by God. It's being still ruled by God despite the fall. Even though Adam fell, the human race fell, God is still creator of this earth. So the disciples, the followers of the Lord, are responsible to live out these beatitudes. Now, how are we primarily going to live out the beatitudes that we have dealt with? Primarily, they are going to show up in our earthly relationships. Uh, That's primarily where the Beatitudes are. Uh, These are not just rules and regulations and good suggestions. These are the Beatitudes of what should gauge or what should guide our relationships in this life. Now, we know life is concerned with many different chapters. Uh, Life deals with matters of marriage, it deals with family issues, with work, with family, with other relationships. But Jesus himself says, ye are the salt of the earth, and then in verse 14, ye are the light of the world. So these two expressions are not just uh, random words and expressions, they are words that are to describe our place in this world. So let's begin here by reading these verses, verses 13 through 16. He says, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt have lost his savor, wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing, but to be cast out and to be trodden under foot of men. Ye are the light of the world, a city that is set on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. Now, these two very familiar words, salt and light, are really where Jesus is placing the emphasis. And so we're going to kind of look at the characteristics of each one of these. 
And we understand that primarily the characteristic feature or the main characteristic of salt is that it preserves. So for the disciple, understanding what being the salt of the earth is, it is remembering what our role and what our purpose is in this life. We are to be, in effect, a preserving type of influence. Now, when Christians and believers are being called salt, uh, if a person, a Christian, ceases to be salt, uh, it, it obscures the, the vision that God has given for his people to reflect. If I cease to be salt, if I could cease to be salt, then I am, I am becoming void of what God's original intention for me to live on this earth was to look like. I should be salt. Now, if we were as believers, and this is something we don't often think about, but if we were removed from this earth, what kind of influences would be removed? We don't, we, I know sometimes we feel like we're kind of being, in some cases, we feel like we're being overrun by evil. We're being overrun by darkness. But do you realize that we all, as the salt of the earth, we have an influence. And that influence is to be an influence that is a preserving influence. Notice again, he says, ye are the salt of the earth. So he's very specific about who he is speaking to. He is speaking to those who are in his kingdom, who have been added to his kingdom by his grace. Just by being put into the kingdom of God, uh, we are, in our character, we are to be a preserving force that prevents and helps to keep society from being given over to utter and complete corruption. Now, that's an overwhelming responsibility. But what we also know, that think about how God has planned this. This is quite interesting to me. God did not save all of his children through Christ and put them in one location. He's actually done quite the opposite. He has placed his people all over the globe, all over this earth. So when, when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth, he wasn't just saying, you are the salt of Israel. You are the salt of Galilee. You are the salt of Jerusalem. He said, you're the salt of the earth. Now, Jesus, by those words, was not just speaking to those disciples and those who were hearing. He was speaking about all of those who would be his followers. He has placed his people all over this globe. He has scattered them. As a matter of fact, God throughout history has used even persecution. Think about this. The sovereign hand of God has driven believers into various parts of the world because of persecution. And that when Jesus said, you're the salt of the earth, I believe he really meant that. You are the salt of the entire earth of all of my creation, not just one place here or another place. Imagine if there was no believing influence in this world except in one place. If we are just nothing more than Christians in name only, but we are not truly the salt of the earth, then the real power to have an influence on the earth and the world is gone. Now there's something happening here that Jesus, this is a very mysterious statement. 
And I, I've heard many, many interpretations of it. I've heard a lot of applications of it. And quite honestly, today I was, I was being reminded again about how powerful these words must have been. Because what Jesus is talking about here, he's identifying who the salt is. But then he speaks about losing savor. And if, in fact, this salt loses its savor, he says there is a very definite purpose for it. Wherewith shall it be salted? It is thenceforth good for nothing but to be cast out and to be trodden under the foot of men. In other words, if it loses its savor, it would be impossible for it to be salted again. Now, that's a deep well there. Because Jesus is talking not about something that we make ourselves, and you'll pardon this expression, salty. <laughs> He's not talking about some kind of a self-help that I want you to make yourself and make people thirst after you. What he is saying is that if you are truly in Christ, if you have truly been saved by grace, you are salt. And he's got something deeper here than just trying to make yourself salty. What he's dealing with here is he's talking about what the power actually is. Savor is a reference and it's not easy to define. But in order for salt to have its usefulness, it has to have savor. Savor is a reference to where its power comes from or what its power is. Now, a person in this world, an unbelieving person, can have some use in this world. There's no question. And that individual can be used in many ways and in other ways maybe fail in other respects. But do you understand what Jesus is saying here? He's saying that if the salt of the earth, if that salt loses its savor, if that salt loses its power, then it becomes good for nothing and its influences and its power becomes good for nothing and all its worth is being cast out and stepped on and trodden down. Now again... Jesus is talking about a rejection here. If salt loses its savor, it becomes utterly worthless. And Jesus is identifying that that which loses its savor will ultimately be rejected. The phrase to be cast out, to be trodden under the foot of men, is the very intent of what Jesus said. That they will be rejected. We're not saved to just have a form or a fashion of religion. We, we've not been converted to just simply have a, a place in this world. We are actually the salt. And what Jesus is talking about here is that if salt isn't salt, if it loses its power, then it's good for nothing. Now again, remember, who's making the declaration? Jesus Christ is calling them salt. This teaches us the necessity that all that are in Christ will truly be preserved and will in fact 
persevere till the end. And what's happening here is Jesus is talking about the savor of divine grace. He's talking about the power that makes you the salt of the earth is the savor of divine grace. And what he means by this is if divine grace could be removed from a man, if it could be, it could never, ever again be restored. Now, this is interesting because the text is so clear upon what's happening here. It would be nonsense to think about a man being born again and yet losing divine life. Jesus is indicating that there is no such thing as somebody who is the salt of the earth one day and then isn't the salt of the earth the next day. He is saying that the salt of the earth has its power found through divine grace and it will always be salt. It is not this moving between, oh, I, was, I failed to be the salt of the earth today because I did not do A, B, and C. What Jesus is suggesting and what he's saying is that if that was the case, it would be really nonsense to think of a person being born again and then losing their divine life and then getting it back again. What that would suggest is that regeneration, in fact, failed. You see, if a man and his regeneration could fail, then he would be forever hopeless. If my regenerating grace that Christ saved me by and through If that could be removed, I would be hopeless. This salt and light is not defined by the things that we do. It's defined by the power of divine grace that's been put upon us. In other words, you don't turn the light on and become the light of the world. You don't make yourself salty to become the salt of the earth because of divine grace. He says you are salt and you are light. I'm afraid sometimes these passages have been used to kind of rally us to make people thirsty for God. That's not really what the intent here is. The intent here is something much deeper. If regeneration fails, a man could not be born again and again and again. But who who would be hopeless? Is it possible that somebody would be impossible to restore? The Bible talks about people that have fallen from grace, but that's really the only indication we talk about. It talks about apostates. It talks about those who were what could seem to be within the reach of grace. But think about what Jesus is saying here. The great lesson is this, that if divine grace fails to save a man, And don't miss this. If divine grace fails to save a man, nothing else can be done for that man. And that's kind of a deep well. But, and and what Jesus is getting at is, is he's getting at the fact divine grace doesn't fail. It doesn't make you salt one day and then you fail to be salt and then it makes makes you light one day and then you fail to be light. This is more than just what we, than, than again, kind of this, works that we put on. Jesus has got in mind here 
He's saying that the great lesson is that if grace fails to save a man, nothing else can be done. If the salt loses its savor, wherewith shall it be salted? If divine grace fails, where else are you going to get it? It's interesting, you know, try to use real world illustrations. You can salt meat, but you cannot salt salt. Right? Salt is used on various things, but you can't salt salt. If grace fails, folks, everything fails. But that's the glory of it. Divine grace doesn't fail. God's grace doesn't fail. Where God's grace rests upon, that individual becomes salt. Its power comes from the divine grace of God. Where God's divine grace works in regenerating the soul, that soul becomes light. We often think about wanting and praying to be full of grace and full of truth. And we often say things and pray things, Lord, help me not to lose my savor. Help me not to lose my saltiness. Help me not to lose my light. If I can lose the salt and I can lose the light, then that means divine grace failed. And in fact, he's not talking about us turning this on and off. He's actually identifying that those who truly are part of the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God, they're already identified as such. You don't stop being salt and you don't stop being light. So you notice here that that's why these two thoughts are connected. Now, it's titled the subject tonight, the salt of the earth. And you might say, well, how's it just the salt of the earth? Because all these thoughts are connected. Notice the context. Ye are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill. What's the next word? Cannot be hid. Now, you take those facts together with what we just talked about. If divine grace doesn't fail that I'm always going to be salt, I'm always going to be salted, if you will, that if I'm truly in the kingdom of God, that light of divine grace shining in me cannot be hidden. It's impossible for me to hide it. So the Lord also calls the disciples the light of the world. Now we understand that light stands opposite to the dark. We could use the very real earthly illustration that the light of Jesus Christ stands in direct opposition of the darkness of this world. But he says, you are the light of the world. A city that's set on a, hill, on a hill cannot be hid. Neither do men light a candle, look at this, and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. The light of the world removes the darkness of sin. It removes the darkness of sorrow and ignorance. The reason that he calls us the light of the world is so that we may, as lights, enlighten the world. Folks, we, we are never to be concealed. We're not supposed to be hidden from the darkness of the world. We're not supposed to even attempt to hide it. God intends his grace to be as conspicuous and as obvious as a city that is built on the top of a mountain that everybody can see. 
Now, what he's talking about here is any attempt that you think that you can conceal the spirit is as foolish as putting a lamp under a bushel. The lamp should be seen by everyone that's in the house. The the lamp should be seen by everybody who's around you. Listen, we talk a lot about the light of the world that we talk about what it means to be the light remember jesus is talking about the characteristics of people who are in the kingdom of heaven he's not telling every single person on this planet you're the salt of the earth he's not telling every single human being you are the light of the world he's talking specifically to those who are truly in christ those who divine grace has certainly worked upon He says, neither do men light a candle and put it under a bushel, but on a candlestick, and it giveth light unto all that are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Wherever there is faith in Christ, folks, this is true across the board. If there's faith in Christ, true faith in Christ, there's always light. Okay, true faith in Christ... There's always light. There is no such thing as a Christian who is truly in Christ who's gone dark. Now again, we get, we get so humanly minded on these things sometimes. We're thinking about, well, that, but maybe what about a believer who's not truly walking with God? What about a believer who's kind of away from the Lord? That's not what Jesus has in mind here. Remember, he's got the two thoughts connected. That if if divine grace could fail, then there would be a problem. If divine grace could fail, then you could cease to not be a light. He's saying everywhere that faith in me is, there is going to be light. Jesus himself said that those who follow him would not walk in darkness. John 8, 12. So genuine faith in Christ turns a person from darkness into marvelous light and transforms him into light in the Lord. So that what happens is the light of Christ pours forth and other people see it. We are appointed to be a light unto others. We are appointed to be a guiding lamp his light increases in us the more we learn about christ now we're not becoming more converted or more regenerated but our light becomes increased what happens in us the more we walk with him the more we follow him the more we're able to even instruct and tell others about who this christ is notice There is this reference to no attempt should be made to cover up the light of grace. It says we cannot be hid. That light cannot be hid. It doesn't say it can be. It says it cannot be hid. If the Lord has built us and put us upon the hill of his love, it is impossible for that believer to dwell in darkness if God has truly enlightened us and set us on a candlestick the candlestick reference is interesting if you go in and study the book of revelation about the churches and the candlesticks and the comparisons of 
churches that are not really the churches. And they're candles. This candlestick reference is something that it's impossible for it to be concealed. Now notice this verse 16 talks a little bit about the light shining. It says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These good works are not so much about the works that we do for people. These works are not so much about what they look like. It's not so much even about the effect of what the works have, but the nature of the work. These works that Jesus is talking about have their source, which comes directly from the Father, which is in heaven. Now, I could attempt tonight, and I would never do this, I could attempt to give you a list of good works. And those lists would vary. I might say, here's what I believe are good works that reflect the light of Jesus Christ. I may ask you for your feedback. What do you think are the good works that, that demonstrate the light of Christ? And you might have a separate list. When he refers to good works, he does not have in mind specific works, but he's saying that the works that are being done are works that are being given directly by their source, which is the Father. Good works are a reference to works that are given as a result of a relationship with the Father. Folks, we can't, we can't, we can't argue with this. There are unbelieving people who do good works. What Jesus has in mind is he, it's, it's not the nature of the work, it's the source of where the works are coming from. If we have been saved by divine grace... We're not only salt, but we are light. And that light cannot be hidden. And if that light cannot be hidden, why? Because the works in which are being produced have their source from the Father in heaven. Look again what Jesus says. Let your light so shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. These works lead man to glorify the Father. That is a key to what is being spread. These, yes, they are works that spread the light of Christ, but they're also works that glorify the Father. Now, what do I mean by that? When, a, when people see the good works of people who are in Christ, instead of saying, what a good person that is, they glorify the Father of that person. Do you see the difference? Instead of saying, boy, that's a good person for all the works that they've done, what, what Jesus himself has in mind, they don't glorify the person, they glorify God. Let your light so shine. Now, we understand something about what Jesus is saying. He's definitely talking about that the light is ours. He says, let your light. Okay, so we see... The light is ours, but the glory is from and for the Father in heaven. We shine, folks, because we have light. We are seen because we shine. The light comes from the Father. The light comes from God. It is not a light switch that you can turn on and off that's based upon whether you do good works or not. 
Jesus is saying very clearly, if you're one of mine, you are salt. And if you're one of mine, you are the light of the world. There will be good works. There will be glory that is unto the Father. By good works, yes, they do shine before men. Oftentimes, the shining that what Jesus is talking about here is not always what we say, but it's witnessed in what we do. Oftentimes, we can read and understand that uh, even the angels, they glorify God. They glorify the God in which they see. When real, true, good works that have their source from the Father are seen by men, they glorify God the Father. Folks, there's really, really an underlaying lesson in all this. We go out of our way to try to prove good works. And I'm not saying we shouldn't be an attempt to do good things. But do you realize what Jesus is saying? He is saying that the true good works that come from a work of divine grace in the life of a person, they are in fact going to glorify my Father which is in heaven. Now again, we're talking about something that's more than just on a human scale here, on a human level. When true works glorify God the Father, men are forced to glorify God even though they don't see God, but they see the mark of good works in people. Again, we've tried to define over the months about what good works are. And remember, lots of people do a lot of good things. Jesus is not talking about doing acts of charity, although we do know that as a believer, we ought to be charitable people. But right here, he's not talking about works that we do. He's talking about definites. He's talking about things that if, if you are in fact in the kingdom of heaven, these things are going to follow you. Salt, we see, prevents something. It preserves. It prevents corruption. Light shows something. Jesus illustrates that the danger of salt is that it loses its savor. He gives an illustration that the danger for light is that it's extinguished by a basket. In other words, to say that there is now no testimony in the world. Now, folks, we don't do anything with the objective of being seen. Now, if the world sees the good works and the, the world sees, hey, that church or that group of believers, they're doing really good things in the world. There's nothing wrong with that, but that's not our desire. Our desire is not to walk, and, uh, walk around the world and say, look, look at my light shine. No, I think, in fact, what Jesus has in mind here is that men will be sure to see the glory of God in us if we truly are in Christ. Folks, we're talking about something here you cannot manufacture. Believers for so many years have tried to convince themselves and try to convince people, look, I'm a believer because I have all of these things. Jesus is saying, listen, if salt loses its savor, then there was not a work of divine grace upon you. If your light goes dark, 
There was, not a divi- there was not a work of divine grace upon you. You see, if we truly possess these kingdom characteristics, what's going to happen in us is all glory is going to be given to God. There's no glory coming our direction. We're not receiving the glory for anything that's being done. It's all due to Him. As the psalm says, not unto us, not unto us, but unto thy name, O Lord, be praised. We realize that if we are to look out upon mankind, mankind is driven by ignorance, they're driven by wickedness, driven by sin. But Christ sent forth his disciples, and by their examples and by their salt and by their light, they were sent forth into this world as a preserving influence. If a man can take up a profession of Christ, if a man or a woman can say, I profess Christ, and yet loses savor, then there never was a work of divine grace in that heart. You are the light of the world. He says it cannot be hid. Our light must shine. Why does the light shine? Because Christ is the light. He's shining in us and through us. Whatever happens between ourselves, our souls, and God, (laughs) that's the great mystery. If we were simply just to base a work of grace on man's works, we could be sorely mistaken about whether or not that person truly is a child of God. In other words, if I declare your profession of faith just based upon the works that I can see, I've gone into something that I really don't have a right to determine. But I do know that Jesus says, and he's telling these disciples, and by way of application to us, that the salt, it will have savor. That there will be light. We have to, we should study to show ourselves approved. We should study to not be ashamed. We should be sure of our profession. We should do everything we can to shine the light of Jesus Christ in this world. So don't leave tonight with the idea that said, listen, I don't have to do any good works because if they're there, they're there. No, we are to be, we should be trying to be a preserving influence in this world. And we should be doing everything we can to shine the light of Jesus Christ into the darkest corners of the earth. But remember this and keep it in mind. We are not aiming for men to see our good works We are living that way and aiming at the glory of God. What I want for my life as a believer is not for man to praise me. I want them to glorify God. And the Bible tells me right here, if I'm truly in Christ, the salt of the earth and the light of the world, there are good works that are coming directly from their source, which is from the Father. And man is going to be brought to a place where all man can say is that's a work of God. Those are works you can't program. Folks, 
real life illustration, we've done nice things for people before. We've given people as, a, as churches over the years, we've provided food for needy families. We've done outreaches. We've done things where we've given people things that they needed. But not every one of those situations led a person to glorify God. Jesus has in mind something bigger than just the things that we see. Now, should we try to take care of the poor and the needy? Absolutely. Why? Scripture tells us to. But what are we truly aiming for? We're aiming for God's glory. Not the applause of man. We're aiming for God's glory. Make God the object of praise. But the salt that's truly, as a result of divine grace, it doesn't lose its savor. If it does, then that means divine grace failed. If light becomes dark, then divine favor and grace has failed. You are the salt of the earth. These are, these are deep thoughts tonight. They are things that make us think. And I hope that as we continue next week, we're going to look at how Jesus is now going to really change the entire narrative And he's going to explain how he honored his father's law. It's really quite remarkable how this conversation or this sermon changes. How it's gone from how the the personal characteristics to the disciples' place in the world. To now how Jesus, before he goes on to teach about some very real and deep subjects such as murder and anger, temptation, divorce, oaths, forgiveness, loving one's enemies. Before he gets into all that, he's going to make this this grand declaration that I have come to honor the Father's law. And there, in fact, is going to be another whole lesson in and of itself. So I hope we'll look forward to dealing with that next Wednesday. All right, let's go ahead and we'll conclude our time this evening in prayer. And again, we're thankful that you're able to be here and uh, trust that uh, the Lord has helped us and has guided us this evening. Let's go ahead and pray and then we'll be dismissed. Father, we bring this time to a close this evening and we're thankful for your word. And Lord, we're thankful for the deep truths that are here. And Lord, help us to understand that the work of grace in the life of an individual yields very real and lasting results. Father, they are not things that can just be pushed away. Lord, you have called us to live a life that is pleasing unto you. You have called us to live a life that tells others and preaches and proclaims the truth. But Lord, may we see this great truth that Jesus was teaching about the power and the work of God in the life of a believer. How that work of God never fails. It doesn't regenerate a soul only to lose that soul. It doesn't convert a soul only to have that soul unconverted. But rather, Lord, when the Father and through the Spirit does a work of grace, it perseveres. Father, I do pray that you'd help us to 
make the glory of God our chief aim. That we would not seek the applause of men, that we would not seek doing good works to gain the approval of people, but that, Father, we would live our lives with the desire to glorify you with everything that we are and everything that we say. Lord, help us to be aware of these designations of the salt of the earth and the light of the world, realizing that Jesus has said that those in my kingdom, they are these things. Help us to realize that we have been left here to be an influence in this world. Lord, help us not to be silent and to not just be passive, but Lord, help us to realize we've been left here to proclaim and preach the truth of the gospel. Father, we thank you for this, this evening. Lord, we leave here tonight in just a few moments refreshed and encouraged, reminded yet again of who we are in Christ. And may we leave rejoicing, knowing that our eternity is secure if we have in fact repented of our sin and believed in Christ alone. And we are forever secure without any chance of falling away. Father, help us to live in surety and to live assured that Jesus Christ has in fact paid it all. There is nothing more left to pay. There's nothing more we could do. He has paid it all and all to him we owe. Lord, we thank you and we praise you. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. All right. Thank you so much.